Howdy. If you would, turn in your Bible to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. As we have been reminded and will continue to be reminded, what John is teaching us here in his gospel is that we are recipients of divine grace. In chapter 1, he tells us, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. To those who are in Christ this morning, uh, we have received grace in unlimited fashion. And Jesus continually pursues us. He continually uh, molds us. He, he continually shows us that He is gracious. We, we have a deep and abiding need for that grace. There, there's a kind of theology... And I think it's just colloquial. I think it just kind of comes with the culture. I, th I think it's just a naturalistic mindset that says if someone comes to Christ, then he is beyond the need for grace. That, that he's, he's saved, and so then we just go on living the Christian life in our own ability. But my friends, we can't do anything without the grace of God. We need grace moment by moment by moment. And God has given us that through Christ. If you would stand as we read verses 1 through 14, again from John chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that, that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up 
unto eternal life. Beloved, this is God's Word to you and I today. Would you pray with me? Father, we come in your presence and we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful for the truth that is taught here. We are so thankful for this gathering. I pray, Father, that you would write the eternal truths that you have for us on all of our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we all thirst, and Jesus says to the woman in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. We, we all have a physical thirst that must be quenched over and over and over and over again. But Jesus doesn't stop in His dealing with the, the thirst, the, the, the problem here, at merely the, the physical. He goes on further in verse 14 to say the the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life there is a spiritual reality that he is speaking to here now as I and we we're asking the question today what is this well what what is this water that that's springing up to eternal life and I'll tell you this, as I studied through this passage and all of the different commentators and the, the different views, uh, they're, they're all full of illustrations to try and get their audience to understand what it is like if you live in a dry, hot, arid kind of climate uh, to have a necessity for water and how important water is. And I thought to myself, well, these illustrations are all unnecessary. Uh, we live in West Texas, we get it. If there has ever been something that has not needed to be illustrated from this pulpit, it's the necessity of water. Um, it's just a, a reality. I mean, if you've lived in San Angelo during the summertime, you get the need for water. And, and, and you could you know, have had that experience in the summertime, whether it's June, July, or, or January. Because we have summer in January here. It comes. But what's really being driven home here in this, this need for water is that as much as we meet those times, whether we're working in the yard or we're walking or, or whatever, the physical exertion, and, and, and we come to the point where we, we, we need our thirst quenched uh, physically, uh, what is being communicated here is that our spiritual need as fallen sons of Adam is no less, in the spiritual sense, uh, for Jesus. Jesus is, 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 is the water from which we drink. We, we must have Christ if we are to live spiritually. If, if we live physically, we must have water. If we live spiritually, we must have Christ. And Jesus here is giving this illustration in His own life. He's been traveling for quite a while. And, and there's this peculiar verse in uh, verse 4. And He had to pass through Samaria. I, I kind of wrestle with exactly what tone is John saying he had to. And I think, maybe, and I don't mean to be irreverent here, but I, I think that John is saying, and Jesus had to go through. Like, th 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 there were other possibilities. He actually had other routes. And the interesting thing, if you understand the, the geological or geographical area in the, the, the path to Galilee, is that there actually was a more well-traveled path than the path that was taken by Jesus and His disciples. It's kind of like, you know, you pop into your 
your GPS, your iPhone, whatever device it is that you use uh, to get directions. I thought about this as, as I was preparing how dependent I've become upon my little GPS. You know, before I came to, to San Angelo, Texas, Sarah and I had, for some of the younger people in here, this is going to be mind-blowing, but I had a phone that flipped open. It was, you know, and, and you couldn't put, if I had to uh, get directions to go somewhere, I had to ask. And I generally would, you know, chart out what they were saying on a piece of paper or whatever, so I had directions. But now we can just type in and it'll generally give you two different paths. Now, in the Clatworthy household, this is a great source of tension. Because my wife lives... To get from point A, gender roles in this particular area are flipped in our marriage. My wife lives to get from point A to point B in as little time as possible. I want to see as much of God's creation in the process as I can. I have, uh, I think, this probably... uh, Passe term to young people now too. I've learned that when I use their language, I'm outdated by 10 years already. But FOMO, fear of missing out. Directionally, that's what I struggle with. Like if we don't take the long way, we might miss something. Now something like that's going on here. Jesus, uh, His disciples, and all of the Jews would normally take a, a route that was east of the Jordan and was much faster. And you didn't have to pass through Samaria. But Jesus had to go. He had to take the long route through Samaria. And the reason why he had to take, uh, uh, why Jews rather normally took this, this uh, shorter route, other than it just being, uh, no, excuse me, I'm sorry, I'm getting all of that mixed up. The, the normal route that the Jews took was the longer route. Ugh, sorry. The, 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 the route that the Jews normally went was longer. And you ask, well, why would they take the longer route? The reason was because they despised the Samaritans so much that they would rather walk a longer route than take something that was shorter. And, and if you think about this, to us that might be the difference between 15 minutes. To, to these particular people, to the nation of Israel to take a longer route in a land that was arid where you depended upon water for survival and it was a very real possibility that if you ran out of water or you got injured along the way you may die you have to think about the weight of how much they despised the Samaritans to take the longer path on the eastern part of the Jordan River just to miss these Samaritan people there there was such hostility towards this group of people. And here John tells us Jesus just had to go on the western bank. He just had to go through Samaria. And we know, friends, as I continue to read through my Bible, I more and more pick up on the realities of God's providence and His rule over uh, His creation and all of human history. And this was not some haphazard meaning. By chance, Jesus just went this particular direction. This was a divine appointment. And it was for the benefit of this Samaritan woman primarily, 
but also for you and I and every member of the body of Christ that we would learn something spiritually. He had to go because everything that Jesus is doing teaches us something spiritual about our lives. And so Jesus went through Samaria. And here we find Christ. And we find Him exhausted in His humanity. I think sometimes we struggle in our thinking about Jesus and because we, we, we understand the deity of Christ, we at times in our thinking rob Him of His full humanity. But here is Jesus, and He's worn out now by His travels, and he, He's sitting at, at, at the edge of, of this well. And what's so interesting to me in all of that, that Jesus took this way, and he's sitting at the edge of the well, and yet you can feel in the text, you can sense in the reality of how Christ interacts with this woman who has, again, remember, this is a woman of ill repute, one that had a reputation that was not favorable. That's why she at noon is there at the well. And Jesus, being worn out in his physical frame, is still more concerned with the spiritual reality for this woman than he is his own desire to get a drink. And Jesus is concerned about pursuing and, and friends, if there is no other text, and there are many others, but there's, if there was no other text, this would be a great text to show us the reality that as human beings, we don't pursue Jesus. Jesus pursues us. This woman was just going to get water and she was going in the middle of the day so that she didn't have to deal with anyone else. And little did she know that Jesus was going to show up in the mundane detail of dipping water from the well and He was going to redeem her. I mean, if the woman at the well would have read John chapter 4 before she went to the well that morning, she would have been, what? This is amazing! She was not expecting this. But friends, and, and there's something about that, that 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 we may think is remote and just for the woman at the well, but th that's a reality in our lives too. That God interrupts us and He deals with us and He molds us and He pursues us with His grace in ways that, that we wouldn't think about. Friends, I promise you that our redemption doesn't depend upon us. It depends upon the, the pursuing work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should be thankful for that reality. But what an amazing picture this is. Here is Jesus, of course, and He's worn out. This is... Turn back to John chapter 1. You can't read... You can't read John chapter 4 without John chapter 1 in mind. Remember, this is the well here that Jacob dug and that is in this, that this Samaritan village was dug for the expressed purpose to be the theater by which God would reveal these spiritual truths and show His creative work and His redemptive work. This is in the context of everything we've learned about who Jesus is, our Trinitarian theology, this is the second member of the Godhead. The, the, the one who verses 1-5 through five speak of, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Here are all of 
the dark circumstances of, uh, of hatred towards an entire ethnic group of people. Racism isn't new. Uh, an individual who had no value, it seems, uh, for marriage and all of her immorality. Uh, here is the, the, the theater of the darkness. And Jesus steps in and He shows us who He is and how He pursues people and how He redeems them. Not partially, but totally. This Jesus could have abstained from needing to have a drink of water. This is the Jesus who existed eternally before the foundations of the world and was worshipped eternally, having ascribed to Him glory by created beings that surrounded His throne, and yet He chose to step into the lowliness of the human frame to take on human flesh, to dwell among us, to walk with us, even to the point that He, he goes out of His way he had to go through Samaria. He came into the earth. He took on human flesh that He would reveal to us the, the lengths to which He would go to redeem the people that the Father had given Him before the foundation of the world. That's what verse 4 teaches us. It teaches us that Christ is not willing to spare Himself anything any difficulty, any hardship to bring those uh, to redemption that He intends to save. Here, Christ is pursuing sinners. Both Nicodemus, the righteous religious man, and this woman of ill repute. Jesus is pursuing the souls of those He comes to save. I think we live in a, a day and age, this is for what it's worth, where, where we kind of hype um, individuals who are lowly in society. And we, we, we want to say that Jesus doesn't have any time for theology and those kinds of things. Friends, what the spectrum of what John chapter 3 and 4 teach us is that it's not about the individual, whether they're educated, uneducated, they have a good moral reputation, or they don't. The reality is every human soul needs divine grace to pursue them and conquer them. And without that reality, we're all damned. There are some people that try to be as worldly as they can to show that, 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 that they want to be more like Jesus. Friends, the, the reality is we just need God's grace for where we are, no matter where God finds us. And again, he's, he's willing to experience exhaustion, inconvenience, and thirst to pursue the souls of those. Think about this. Here is Jesus willing to thirst physically. God Himself willing to thirst while the world longs for Him. While the world really desires Him. While the world thirsts and hungers and seeks after Jesus. That's not the narrative. The, the narrative is a world that hungers for autonomy from God. I will do worship my way, God. I will, do, I, I will do life my way. That's part of what's going on in the narrative of both Nicodemus and this woman at the well. And yet Jesus, in His immeasurable desire to see the plan of redemption come about for His own glory, He walks these difficult paths and He 
thirst. And you'll be reminded that this isn't the last time that Jesus will experience thirst. And in the same pursuit of the souls of men that He intends to save, He hung on a cross and He would say in verse 28 of chapter 19, I thirst. Uh, This picture gives us the the reality that Jesus is not just some phantom like the Gnostics would have us to believe. That that Jesus truly has taken on human flesh. That He is truly man. Jesus became a man and experienced all that we experience. And why? So, So that we would receive grace upon grace. And so here when we see Jesus weary and hot and hurting and thirsty... We should marvel. We marvel at the reality that God would do that. But the greater reality, the greater thing to marvel at is that the outcome of this, the reason that He did all of these things was yes, first for His glory, but also that we would receive grace upon grace. The question I think in light of this reality that the second member of the Trinity would not spare Himself any pains to see and, and listen, Jesus was not unconvinced about His sovereign rule over the universe. There is a, you all have heard that there's a controversy about God's sovereignty and how that works in human salvation in the church. It's raged for 2,000 years. You have Pelagius and his band and you have Augustinian theology and then you move a little bit forward and you've got Jacob Arminius and John Calvin and and the fight just keeps on coming. Can I tell you that that fight has always existed in the, the, the fallen humanity of the church but it's never existed in God? Jesus has never wondered, am I really sovereign over all things? And He settled on that reality. He is sovereign over everything. He knows that He's got a perfect order of salvation and He knows about the plan of redemption. But here He acts to bring about that plan of redemption. And I think the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Jesus didn't have a theology where He just believed that He was sovereign and did nothing. He acted upon the plan that, as He understood it. And so here's the question. Are we living in a way where we are willing to suffer so that the name of Jesus might be proclaimed among the nations? Are we willing to suffer inconvenience and difficulty? There's an arrogance that pervades the church today, I'm convinced. That we don't want to talk to people who disagree with us. You know, if I didn't talk to people that disagreed with me, I would have have no relationship with my wife. I wouldn't have a relationship with most people in this congregation. Disagreement is a reality when you have fallen creatures whose minds are not fully conformed to the image of Christ. We're going to have disagreements. But we should be willing to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And friends, listen to me. Believing that God is completely sovereign over human salvation, we should also be willing to exert everything in our lives. We should be willing to lay anything down for the name of Jesus to be magnified and lifted high. That we would see the plan of redemption come to pass. Jesus was certainly willing to to deal with difficulty. Uh, The fact that Jesus here in this narrative and in chapter 19, that He expresses physical thirst should always be an encouragement to us. I was talking to one of my dear friends in the church this morning and just about ministry and part of the conversation imparting she said to me that boy this is hard. Ministry is hard. Ministry is hard. 
To live the life of a Christian. The, the, the best life now, people, you know, Joel Osteen and that crowd, they say that to follow Jesus means you're going to live a life where you get everything that you want and, and it's, it's just glorious. Friends, there is going to be a day where I will see the world made anew and it will be glorious. But this life is full of difficulty and trial as we decrease and Christ increases. It is difficult. It is hard. But we're, we're more joyful as Christians knowing that our Savior walked the path before us. Not only do we see, here we have this glorious picture of, of the wearied Christ the one who perfectly understood the, the pactus salutum and, and the order of salvation. And, and here he is wearied in his ministry, making the gospel known. But we also here have a, a picture of a woman who is worn and troubled with all of her burdens. Here is a woman who has been despised by Jewish people. Now, now we think about the, the, the disciples and the Jewish people despising uh, the Samaritans and, and John writing that he had to go through uh, Samaria and, and all that that means. But I think we also need to put ourselves in, in the shoes of this woman who had been despised by the Jewish people. And, and, and we have to take another step too. Jewish men would thank God publicly in prayer that they had not been born dogs nor women. This was not a high view of women in their, their society. Gentlemen, don't pray that in front of your wife. She'll kill you. The Jewish men had a low view of women, but they had the lowest view of Samaritan women. There, there's no doubt. And here we find a, a, a Jewish man willing to speak to a Samaritan woman. Friend, I wonder if this Samaritan woman was embittered. Uh, when people are sinned against, it's pretty normal. I've seen it in pastoral ministry and just in my life in general. And we can see it in, I think, our historical context. When people are sinned against, it's normal over the course of life. And I'm not saying that it's right when I say it's normal, but it's a normal outworking in a sin-cursed world that people turn bitter. When they are constantly rejected and treated poorly for no good reason, those people become embittered and, and, and they become suspicious and, and they become skeptical and, and they reject those who are being unkind to them, who are rejecting them. I've shared with you before, one of my, one of my top five favorite books is a book written by a man named Alan Patton. It's, it's a narrative book uh, really kind of aimed at apartheid in, South, uh, in, in Africa. And... Um, the, the whole narrative of the book quickly is there is a, an African man, a black man, who lives in a rural area of Africa, and his son and his family move into Johannesburg, and they all go the way of the world. His sister becomes a, a prostitute, his son is involved in criminal activity, and so the narrative flows in the direction of this poor country pastor who is living under the reality of apartheid and the hateful reality of, of, of white oppressive people during this time. And um, he pursues both his sister in trying to draw her back to Jesus and also his son. 
And there is this, this phrase, this one sentence, there's many good sentences, but there's one in particular that stuck with me in, in, in uh, Patton's work. Unfundisi is the, the title for this pastor. It, it means honored one and, uh, throughout the book. Boy, I, it took me probably 16 chapters before I could pronounce unfundisi. Um, uh, but he, he comes to this point where he's looking at apartheid and all of the, the racism and the hatred and the difficulty that's going on and the fact that, that during this particular time, white people were hating people of his ethnicity. And, and he makes this statement. He says, I have one great fear in my heart, that one day when they are turned to loving, then they will find out that we are turned to hating. And so it is in every epoch of human history uh, we live in a time period where it's in vogue in the culture to hate one group of people for what their ancestors did in years past. Um, and it's foolishness because it's a perpetuation of the problem. It's not a solution to the problem. But do you see that that's a reality throughout human history? That we tend to, when we are hated, we hate in return. When we are despised, we despise in return. Well, here we find a woman who has not been welcomed by the people of God. And, and if you'll remember back when I preached in John chapter 2, that one of the major issues um, with the cleansing of the temple, and I believe this with all of my fiber, is that the, the nation of Israel had become so wayward in their understanding of their role and call under Almighty God to be a gospel light to the nations that they had shut out the court of the Gentiles by turning it into a, a marketplace. Well, here we have the same problem. They were so hateful of their neighbor that they weren't even willing to walk through the neighborhood. They would take a different route entirely. Jesus here is willing to interact with this woman. But what we find in this woman, I think, is remarkable. It's possible that she struggled with, with looking at him and probably being able to tell this is a, a Jewish man because we don't see a direct discourse laying that out. And she sat silently before him, knowing the weight of how Jewish people felt towards her. But astonishingly, in spite of that silence, and, and this is important to note, she doesn't start in the conversation. It is Jesus who says, give me a drink. And then the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Because everybody knows, parenthetical here, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Something's altogether different about this Jew, about this particular man. And Jesus goes further. Uh, Jesus says in verse 10, are you... Now, sorry, got to get to verse 10 of chapter 4. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
He says, I will give you life eternal, water that is ever flowing. What we see so clearly here again is is that Jesus is the one who is giving this water. That Jesus doesn't set up a, 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 a... well, he doesn't pitch a tent and throw down sawdust trails and, and say, okay, everyone that walks down the aisle and asks for water and fills out a card, I'll give them water. Jesus isn't asking for permission to save this woman. He's not. He's not, he's not leaning into her affections and emotions and, and trying to get her to make a, a, an emotional decision. It's not in the text. Jesus merely says, look, if I give you this living water, it will well up within you. Left to ourselves, we would be left to perish at the side of the well. Jesus doesn't leave us to ourselves. He, he arranges everything. Jesus had had this well built long before this woman ever came to know uh, what it meant to draw water. He arranges everything. Even, again, something so mundane as, as getting a drink of water. And he does this so that he pursues his children and he redeems them at the fullness, at the right time in their lives that he would receive the glory for having saved them. So again, we have to come to this question, what is the living water? She, she begins again with this unsophisticated liberal, literal, excuse me, not liberal, literal interpretation. She, she does just as Nicodemus did with the new birth in chapter 3 when he said, you know, Jesus tells him he has to be born again and he says, well, do I have to go into my mother's womb? He's super literal. She, in, in like fashion in verse 15, sir, give me this water so that I don't uh, so that I will not be thirsty or, ha- or have to come here to draw water. The, the words here uh, in, in the original Greek speak of a, a, not a well with stagnant water, but of moving, flowing water. And, and this captured the attention of this woman. When she comes back, she's a little bit indignant that Jesus says, if I give you water, it, it will continually... Uh, you'll never thirst again. She, she's a little bit indignant at this. And she says, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where will you get this living water? Uh, part of the implication of what she's saying here is this. If there were water flowing, we wouldn't have had to dig this well in the first place. If there were a river, because that's the terminology, Jesus, that you're using, then Jacob wouldn't have ever had to dig this well. There's a distinct difference between the well and the water that you're speaking of. Now, she should have picked up on that and realized that he's not talking about the the, the physical thirst problem that she perceives. But she doesn't. In fact, she goes on and persists in this literal interpretation of what he's saying. But she does understand that he's not talking about stagnant water, and we'll get to this in a minute. He's talking about a river or a spring that is flowing. Wells don't flow that way. And she understood that, but she's still super literal. And she's super confused. And, and, and really, this shouldn't have been confusing to her. Because if she, if she would have known the Old Testament... If she would have understood the Word of God in that context, she would have drawn the reality that God is constantly throughout the Old Testament expressing Himself in terms of water. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, With joy you will draw water from wells of salvation. Proverbs 25, 25, I have had for years in my office, Like cold water to a thirsty soul, 
So is good news from a far country. Uh, Psalm 42, most of us know. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for You, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Jeremiah chapter 2. There are two indictments against the nation of Israel. God says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken Me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What, what Jeremiah is saying is that the people of God had developed for themselves ways of being satisfied apart from a relationship with God Himself. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. These are just to name a few throughout the Old Testament. God is saying that He is the only one who can satisfy the human soul. Jesus is stating here that He is the God who quenches the thirsty human soul. Christ is saying to this woman, who has gone through five different relationships, who has a horrible reputation in the community because of her immorality. Jesus is telling her that He is the one who can satisfy all of the longings that she has sought to meet in other earthly means. That He can be a well in her flowing unto everlasting life. That everything that... Do you believe this this morning, Christian? Everything that you need is in Christ. There is something about our sinful hearts that will qualify that statement. We have everything that we need in Jesus, comma, but. Oh, we're really good at that. Oh, Jesus is sufficient, and then we'll categorize for all these spiritual things over here. Friends, I promise you that when we stand before the throne of grace, your heart will no longer have the, the, the qualifications. You will see the reality that Jesus is perfect in His fullness and that there is our righteousness. There is love that spans eternity and mercy. And of course, grace upon grace. I don't know if you've ever heard, and I've spoken about this before. I'll do it again because it drives me nuts. The, the colloquial way of doing some sort of... They, I think they call it evangelism. I think it's just stupid sentimentality. I shouldn't use the word stupid, I know, but that's what it is. It's the nicest way I can put this. The, the way of leaning into people of saying, we'll just give Jesus a try. You, you should just try Him out. See if you like Him. Friends, the, the Bible never instructs us to tell people to try Jesus out. It doesn't work that way. Jesus is not like some little, you know, little piece of cake on a buffet and you can go take a nibble and see if you like Him. Jesus will come to those that He's going to redeem. He will, as He tells Nicodemus, regenerate their cold, dead hearts. And when He does that, there is a well of living water inside of them and they will be satisfied with nothing in this world apart from Him. There is no trying out Jesus. If you really experience Christ, nothing else will satisfy you. This is part of my testimony as I grew up in a home where I was in Christ, but I didn't have a good model of how to walk in Christ. And could I sin? Absolutely I could. But I could never find satisfaction there. Because Christ was always working conviction in my soul. 
You see, the, the reality is we need to get this in the right order. The problem isn't that people need to try Jesus out. The problem is, is that lost humanity for the entirety of creation after the fall, from Genesis 3 to this very day, humanity has been trying the world out. Humanity's been sampling everything that this world has to offer as a means to satisfy our dead souls. We've tried money, relationships, achievement, approval, health, everything in this world. We've tried it all, and none of it satisfies. A world is what we try over and over and over again, and we never come to a moment where we go, man, isn't all of this sinful junk in this life, isn't it fantastic? Nobody could ever write me a paycheck that would satisfy my soul the way that Jesus does in giving me everlasting life. Nobody could ever give me a relationship that is in a horizontal earthly sense that measures up to the glory of having fellowship with a second member of the triune God through the Spirit and on with the Father. The sad reality though is this, this and this is, listen, the church at times seems to signal that once you come to Jesus, you, you don't sin anymore. And friends, Empirical evidence just proves that false. Over and over again, even after coming to Jesus, every one of us could give testimony, if we're going to be honest, of trying to see if the world will maybe just satisfy that qualification that we have to Jesus being sufficient in all things. Jesus is sufficient, but what about this area of my life? I'm just going to live in a little bit of worldliness over here. What we find in pursuing the world as a Christian is that the world can never satisfy the longing of our soul. The world can never give us what we truly long for. The world can never ultimately make our lives meaningful. There is something in this generation of, 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 of folks that wants to find significance in the work that we do and the things that we include in our life and a balance between serving others and resting. I have friends that they ask me about vacationing all the time. If I have any problem in my life, I have a dear friend who I love. He's such an encouragement. The one discouraging thing he does with me all the time. If I have a problem, well, Jay, you just need a vacation. Do not need a vacation. <laughs> I, I, I just to the younger crowd in here, I, I know that in, 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 there is a possible tendency towards a type of living for Jesus where we are living out of our own strength, where we are doing good deeds of being in church and we're, we're trying to keep up with our, our spiritual rubric in a certain way that's unhealthy. But I think that there's a reality that we can look to our forefathers and be encouraged by, and that is they gave everything in their lives for the glory of Christ. They constantly wanted the gospel to be magnified in their community. Church attendance was not something that you would do uh, when you wanted to. It was when the doors are open, we'll be there. And certainly there is, again, a, a legalistic way of saying that. But can I tell you this? Most of the people that I know that are faithful to be in church every time the doors are open are not dry legalists. 
There are people that are there because there is a living fountain. There's a spring of water welling up inside of them, and that's where they want to be. It's not a, I have to do this. It is a, I am compelled because of my love for Jesus that I get to be with the people of God. And I I just see our generation increasingly being a group of people who will live off of videos on YouTube and then show up one time a week and think we've done God some sort of service. Friends, that to me does not speak of a heart that has living water in it. You'd have to tear me away from the church Because I've grown, this is, Jay Clatworthy doesn't make sense anymore apart from the body of Christ. I've had people from time to time ask me, Jay, are you going to leave Providence Baptist Church? I just think, and one dear brother, I think that God's gifted you and there are so many other things you could be doing. That may be true. I just have one problem in my ministry to go somewhere else. And that is convincing every one of you to pack your bags and move your families wherever that would be. Because this is not some sort of religious thing to me. This is where we get to gather around the Word of God and encourage one another. And yeah, there are a lot of you that I disagree with. And you all disagree with a lot of things probably about me. But the point is that we should come together to serve Christ and do it with joy and gladness, not out of moralism, but out of the reality that God has ransomed our soul and there is nothing out there that will satisfy us apart from the Gospel. And what has changed in American church growth strategists and people all over the place come up with different theories about why the church is not full today the way that she once was. And I'm convinced it's because of this. We have filled churches with false converts that do not have living water in them. And so then we put pastors before them and wear them out, making the pastor some sort of performer to entertain the congregation. Friends, that's not the way that the body of Christ works. The body of Christ works in that Jesus redeems His people in His timing and places within them a well of living water that is overflowing continually, constantly wanting to learn, constantly wanting to grow, constantly wanting to serve, constantly wanting to be worn out in the ministry for the glory of God, willing to experience frustration and exhaustion and all of the things that Jesus experienced, not because we think we're doing the ministry in our own strength, but because we know He's sovereign and He has chosen us as the means for the ministry. None of that was in the notes. We can move on now. I think what is so important to consider, what is being said here, look in verse 14. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The water in the well is not what Jesus is talking about. And she constantly kind of goes that direction. The, 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 again, well water doesn't bubble over. I've lived in the country long enough to know that if you go out to the well and it's bubbling over, we got a problem, y'all. Something's not, this isn't normal. I think, I think to illustrate this, it's like, let's say we're building, in fact, so if we're building a church property, let's say, 
And we find out that there's a well on the property right in the middle of where we want to put the main sanctuary. That's not a problem. We'll just take a bulldozer and push dirt off into that well. It'll be filled and we can go on about life. But if there's a spring in that same place, in the middle of where we want to put the sanctuary, that's a problem. This is Bennett Springs State Park. This is the most glorious place on the face of the earth. If you ever meet my my son Bennett, he's named after this spring. There's a, you might be a redneck joke tied up in that somewhere. You might be a redneck if your son's named after your favorite fishing spot. Whatever. Out of that spring flows, y'all get this mind-blowing when I was a kid and I found out I thought this was the coolest thing in the world. A hundred million gallons of water come out of that spring every single day. Ice cold. If you tried to bulldoze water over that hole, it wouldn't matter. It just keep flowing out and flowing out, and you would never build a church on that geographical location. It would not work. And so it is in our lives, beloved, what Jesus is telling this woman is, look, the, the water that I give, it can't be resisted. If there is not a more glorious text for the doctrine of irresistible grace, I think it's this one. Because when, when Jesus saves someone, do Christians try to mask their relationship with the Lord at times with earthly things? Sure we do. Uh, the church has tried money, fame, everything that you can imagine. But when, and, and in our personal lives, we can think about the times that we have foolishly pursued the world. But when Jesus has truly saved a soul, you can't get away from it. You can't run from your calling in Christ. You, you, can't, you can't ultimately shut down what God has done in you. You can't run from the church. You can't, uh, you can't ultimately undo. This is the, the whole idea that somehow I'll, I'll come to Jesus, but I might lose my salvation. Friends, I promise you on the authority of verse 14 of chapter 4 of John, you cannot lose your salvation. Because when Jesus saves, He saves eternally. Jesus is really telling us, I think, in this passage, what we've already learned in verse 16 of chapter 1. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. It flows over and over and over and over again. Now here's the question. And, 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 and you know, as a little boy, there was one thing. I, this is... One thing that gave me such joy in life and much consternation to my mother. And it was playing with water and dirt at the same time. Just a muddy, nasty mess. Go out and take Tonka trucks and dig trenches. It breaks my heart that we're not letting little boys do some of those kinds of things in this day and age. But, you know, you, you do all kinds of things. And, and, and here's the, the, the reality. As we as Christians fill our lives with more things that are temporal, it muddies up the gospel. We can take everything that we long for from this earth and we can heap it into our lives. One of the things I think about very often, and this just is one illustration, in a practical term, and I'm going to struggle to get this out before you in a way that's concise, and lucid, but my great grandparents, they had one car their entire marriage, and they had a little bitty ranch style home, tiny little bedrooms, cheap furniture. They were the most contented people I've ever seen. My generation has a four car garage, 
a bedroom for the dog, you know, a, a fish pond out front so that we can be amused. We have all of the stuff. And yet we seem to struggle so much. And the number of, 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 of marriage counseling sessions I've had where at the center of the, the division between a husband and a wife is that they want to build and have and, and, and they're so engrossed in earthly things. And then the Gospel becomes obscured in the life of the church and in our marriage because we've longed for all of the things of the world. Will that ultimately undo our salvation? No. But it obscures the glory of what Christ has done. And I promise you the earthly things that we pursue will not last. None of them. And just so we're clear this morning, I'm not preaching at you. I'm telling you, I've tried out all of the things that this world has to offer and they will not bring redemption they will not bring satisfaction only christ can do that so here's the question this morning knowing that jesus saves unilaterally utterly and completely knowing that he puts a well of 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 water that is living in you and this is our desire to, to to ultimately be satisfied in christ and in christ alone Knowing that that is a reality and also knowing that as sinners we are so prone to adding earthly, worldly things into our lives. I I just want to ask you the question, what are you filling your life with? What is it that you are thinking that you will accomplish for the Lord by heaping up earthly things into your life? I think we have to ask the question, what made the church powerful in moments of awakening, in moments of revival? What what made the church a force to be reckoned with politically and culturally? What is it that gave the church strength in such a way that now we can look down through history and see the church impacting governments and 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 leaders and and the family and again society well i can tell you this it wasn't decisions it wasn't man-centered methodologies of doing ministry it wasn't and here is here is a great reality that this text teaches us too Every generation is going to come in and say, we want the the church to conform to us. Let's bring this in from the world. Let's bring that in from the world. None of those things ever hold water. None of those things ever bring revival. None of those things ever ultimately bring about redemption. I think the real power then that we have to consider was that the people of God were only satisfied with one thing. And that was the glory of God. That it wasn't how you make me feel. It was putting God before the people and the people not responding to worldliness, but responding to the triune God of all of the universe. Not being satisfied with anything but Him. Not being willing to sell out our families and our churches for material things. I do wonder. I often set my office. I think a lot of things. A lot of them are not probably helpful, but Luther was, Luther was absolutely red-hot indignant at Tetzel 
because Tetzel would dare sell indulgences. That he would, he would market the gospel in a way that, Braxton, if you want your family member to be in heaven, when the coin in the vessel uh, makes a noise, I don't remember the term, uh, the soul from heaven or from, from purgatory springs up into heaven. You can buy your loved one. That was man centered nonsense to him. And so, what did he do? He wrote out 95 problems. Somebody asked me recently, I don't know, a Catholic person, do you, do you, what do you think about the, 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 the leaders of the Catholic Church? Boy, I'm really starting to have a problem with them. 506 years I've had a problem with them. And I'm glad you're waking up to the Pope as a bunch of nonsense. Anyway, but you, you have Luther that's, that's, that's defending the church from error there. And on throughout church history, Calvin and Zwingli, and I could just name all of these names. And I would just wonder if they walked into a church service with all of the fog machines and the lights and the man-centered appropriation of words and, and trying to, Lewis, stir up your feelings and, and all of those kinds of things, I think that there would be more than 95 problems that would be enumerated in our day. And it doesn't matter that it's coming out of Protestant so-called churches. The issue is this, beloved. This is the point. The issue is this. The church lives or dies on whether or not we are enamored with the glory of God. And the immediate question is going to be, how can we do that? How can we as sinners make God's glory the central aim of our heart? Not the programs, not the accolades, not the music things, not wealth, not all of that, not even our families, but the glory of God. How can we do that? Great question. Jesus answered it. You can't. You must be born again. It's only by His grace. He has to take from you a heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. He has to take from you a heart that longs after all of the dead, stagnant stuff that the world has thrown in the bottom of the well. And He has to give you a heart that springs forth with everlasting water unto eternal life. So what is one thing we can do in light of that? If you're here today and you have a heart that longs for Jesus, that is only satisfied in Him, and this tends to, over the course of our Christian life, be incremental. We, we come to know Jesus and usually at the very beginning we are on fire for Jesus. We're going to take on hell with a squirt gun. And then we realize oh, this world is doomed to destruction and we're not going to change it. It's going to continue to be that way. And then we start to look inwardly and we see all of the different things that our, our flesh is satisfied in and slowly but surely the Spirit, by His grace, in His own timing, works us and molds us into the image of Christ and the things of earth grow strangely dim in light of God's glory and grace. We, we no longer are, 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 are longing for the things of this life, but we are longing to be with Jesus. What do we do in light of having a heart like that? Beloved, we pray with everything in us that God would move in our day and continue to redeem fallen men for His own glory. We herald and proclaim with precision the Gospel. We support the ministries of the church. You know, here's one thing that I, I believe with everything in me, and I'll be done. I'm on borrowed time now. Oh. One of the things for young people is that we desire community. I hear it all the time. We need community. We need more community. 
Can I encourage you that you can't have community when you treat the church like a commodity? When, when you come in when it's convenient for you, you'll never build community. Do you know why some of the older members of our church have lifelong friendships? Because they met here three times a week without fail. And they built their lives together. Not out of a self-righteous aggrandizement, but because God had saved them. Beloved, if we really long for community, then let's be together. Let, let's love one another. And does it always have to be in this place? No. There's so much consumerism in the church today. I, I, I hope that you've heard that from me. There's so much of that stuff. And it is alive and well in Reformed thinking. But we're not peddlers of the Gospel. We're a people who have been redeemed through the grace of God. We have received grace upon grace upon grace. Let's pray for our community and seek to be bold witnesses where God has planted us, wherever that may be. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence today thankful for Your kindness, thankful for the reality of the living water that You have given to us who are in Christ. We're so thankful that we can learn to to put away the things of this earth. That, that we can this week even pray, God, what is it that You would have me remove from my life that has been a pursuit of my heart, that has obscured the glory of what You've done? Father, I, I pray for those who are in Christ this morning that if there are things that are, and I know there are, there are in my life, uh, that are distraction to Your grace and Your glory, that, Father, You would remove them that you would, you would convict us of our sin. And Father, if there's one here today that doesn't know You, who's never turned in repentance and faith, I pray, Father, that You would do what only You can do. Birth them anew into Your kingdom. Show them Your glory. Father, we pray that they would turn in repentance and faith, that they would turn from their own religious views and their own uh, uh, ways of trying to come to You and that they would rest in Christ and in Christ alone. Father, I, I pray for Your church in the days ahead that we would not be people given to worldly ideologies, that we would increasingly be willing to walk away from man-centered thought and theology, that we would increasingly desire not to be with the world but to be with Your people. I pray, Father, that we would be clear in our profession of faith that it's you and you alone who has shown us grace upon grace and so we come to this place to worship you for that reality in jesus name amen if you would stand and we'll sing my jesus and my love, I love you.